0: You ever noticed how uncomfortable silence is? <laughs> I've been married over 47 years, and, and, and I'm fine followed by silence is one of the most scary things I've ever heard in my life. It's, it's, um, silence is hard. It, it's, um, as a pastor, you know. You, you kind of wanted people to just go in and tell you they didn't like you instead of just silence. Silence. Um, there were plenty but that's another stay for another subject we have been in these three weeks that i've had the privilege of been with you uh talking about these special birth narratives of the old testament and and what i've tried to do is show you that god used these birth narratives to to fill in the big story of the bible um I didn't start with it, but I could have. The, the first uh, call about birth is in the curse, Genesis chapter 3, where the, God says to the woman, your seed will bless all people. There's this promise of the woman's seed who would, who would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. This birth coming. And then we looked at Abraham and Isaac because Abraham was God's interruption in Genesis 12 after the description of all the, the flood and all the big picture stories that the story of the Bible particularizes to the nation of Israel because God goes to Abraham and said, through you, I will create a nation. And then after all these many years, when he's a very old man, 100 years old, his wife is 90, he says, um, you're, you're going to have a son. And and. He will be the means by which I fulfill this covenant that I made with you, which you felt I would never meet. God had promised that to Abraham and then waited forever. And then finally gives Isaac. And there's this beautiful birth narrative of Isaac. And then Isaac is, is the perfect picture, perfect picture of what the son of Abraham would ultimately do because Abraham takes him to the Temple Mound in Jerusalem, And begins to offer him as a sacrifice to God. I mean, it's it's just a breathtaking picture, prophecy of what God will do through the nation of Israel and through Abram's seed. Just amazing story. And then, then we talked about Moses, another crazy birth narrative where the people of Israel appear to have been forgotten. They've been taken out to uh, because of the you remember the story of Joseph taken out of the land of Canaan and brought to Egypt where God protected them and they grew to a nation of up to three million people and then and then they're enslaved they're suffering horrible oppression it feels like God has forgotten them says that there was a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph interesting didn't remember Joseph and and God um sends Moses and and the birth wasn't supernatural, but the story was because he was doomed to die, and they put him in a, in a, in a little basket, which the word is actually ark. Fascinating. Floating in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and, and then he's raised to be a king, and then he spends 40 years in the wilderness, ironically, where he would lead the nation of Israel for 40 years. It's as if God has a plan. It's crazy. And then he will come back and lead the nation of Israel and bring judgment on Egypt with the waters of the Red Sea. We could have talked ab- about uh, Samuel. Great birth narrative there. I just ran out of weeks. Because um, uh, another uh, another infertile mom, barren mom, Hannah. And God intervenes and and... Gives her Samuel, and then other children afterwards, but only after she will dedicate him to serve as the Lord. And Samuel becomes that prophet who will introduce the kingdom, because he he is the one whom God uses to anoint Saul and and the transition to David and the Davidic covenant, which further the, furthers the promises of God begun at Abraham that that God will raise up a seed that will one day bring. Uh, peace to all the world this this narrative that goes through scripture of these promises, and the signposts are often these miraculous birth stories and i 've thought about why the birth story, and I, I think there 's a reason for it because it 's we have an inclination when someone does great things to say well they 're just remarkably gifted i 've studied leadership, my old adult life and and the great man theory is. Ironically, it's called the great man theory is if there are no great women, I'll let someone else figure that out. But the, the great man theory of leadership is there are just some people who are particularly great. But the problem with that is that's never the whole story. It is, it is the circumstances are a part of that. And God wants us to know through these birth narratives, they were destined to be greatness before they were born because it was my plan, not their gift that made them that. It's God uses the birth narrative to drive home the point is, yeah, Abraham and Moses and, and Samuel, they're good guys, but they accomplished what they did because I, God says, I had a plan, and I demonstrated that with their circumstances of their birth. Today, I want to look at the last one before Jesus, and that's John the Baptist, John the baptizer, um, uh, who who breaks the silence. Scripture says, there was 400 years, roughly, 400 plus. Interesting, Scripture says there 430 years of, of slavery in Egypt, and now there is 400 plus years of silence between the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, and the time of Christ. It, it is a period of silence. It's interrupted about midway um, by the Maccabean Revolt, which is the story of the of the Feast of Lights. That's where Hanukkah comes from. Just to orient you, it's a, it's a story of God intervening for the nation of Israel. But there there's no prophet for 400 years. And the nation of Israel... Is awaiting. And we know from scripture and extra biblical scripture that during that time there were guys that were out and announced, hey, I'm the Messiah, and there would be revolts and then they would die, and everybody decided maybe not. And then there were other things that would happen. It was a time of turmoil for the nation of Israel because they're under slavery to the nation of Rome, this great, incredibly powerful empire, and yet they had all of these promises that they're waiting to be fulfilled, and yet they're slaves again and there there's this yearning for god what will you do and there are the pharisees who bring them back to the law and the sadducées i don't know what sadducées did but anyway they they're they're the old line is the pharisees believed in life after death the sadducées didn't that's why they're sadducée that's free i gave you that at no charge you can take that home and um um it's so corny. It's a dad joke, right? Um, I remember the professor who said it, and I've never forgiven him. I've also never forgotten it, though. That there, were, there, were, there, were, there was all the spiritual yearning, and the, fe- the priests and, and the Sanhedrin were jostling over power. You just get this sense the nation of Israel is just vibrating in frustration. And that's where the story picks up now. And she did a wonderful job reading that that description of in Luke chapter 1, and the story of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest. Uh, One source I found at one point said there were 20,000 priests at this time. I never found it again to confirm it, so you can't prove me wrong but anyway there were a lot of priests and they were in 24 different groups and they would rotate their service in the nation in the in Jerusalem but they were scattered throughout the nation of Israel and and the story says that Zechariah's time had come for his group to be in Israel I mean in Jerusalem and he won by lot the, the, the prestigious assignment of being able to burn the incense. You know, the, the tabernacle and the, the temple had the big area, and then there was a building in the middle, and the front room was called the Holy Place, and in that, behind that was the Holy of Holies. But in the Holy Place, the priests would go in every day, morning and evening, and burn incense. And the incense showed the prayers of the people going up to God, and he would, on behalf of the people, pray. And the passage says that he's praying, burning the incense, and an angel shows up. And even a priest was surprised by that. And the angel says, God has answered your prayers, which means we know exactly what he was praying. <laughs> he was praying that he and his wife, Elizabeth, could have a child. They had gone through the horrible, horrible pressure of infertility and um, and I, I think I mentioned before, infertility is one of the. I I was being a guy, dumb to how painful infertility could be for couples, especially women. It was even worse then because women's status was almost solely related to the kids she had. But it, it's an incredibly difficult uh, thing, um, and and there's a tension with the story of Hannah and Samuel and and Elizabeth and John. There's a tension there because in one sense. That women struggling with infertility uh, have hope because God obviously knows about their struggle. And in these cases, he answered. But there's also the frustration if, in your case, God doesn't give you a child. And you say, okay, God, I know from Scripture you can and you didn't for me. And there, there's a tension with those passages. And it's, it's, it, it's hard. The one thing I will say, though, is what these passages do show is that God knows and God cares. It doesn't escape him. It's like so many of the results of the fall. He doesn't intervene and end them, but we know he cares. And he, he walks with us no matter what they are. And um, disease and war and famine and infertility, all of the results of the fall, God is yet with us even when he doesn't eliminate them. He will not eliminate them until the fulfillment of time, right? Right? which is what all of this points to. So the angel says to Zechariah, yo, Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and um, he won't cut his hair. He won't drink strong drink. That's apparently referring to the Nazarite vow in number six, which was to set some men apart for special leadership. Samson and and possibly Samuel both apparently were Nazarites. Um, and... and he will come after, like Elijah. That's fascinating. That's, that's, he, two different passages are quoted in the, in the, uh, this, uh, one is Malachi chapter three, that promises that one will come. The other one is Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, uh, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make way for the way of the Lord, which Handel made famous. Um, and, um. But there's also Malachi 4, 5, and 6. and Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the last verses of our Old Testament, God says that there will be one who comes like Elijah. And it's clear that he will bring about spiritual restoration among the people. But what he says he will do is he will restore the hearts of the fathers, the children the children to fathers. And one of the things I've become convinced of is that there, there are certain things that are signs of a people moving away from God. One of them is sexual sin. Sexual sin is always associated with, with peoples leaving God. The other one is generational divide. Broken love between parents and children. Because Elijah is get, the sign of the, the, what he will bring is restoring relationships between fathers and children. And I, I've sat with couples where there was brokenness on both sides of the, the ball with that. And, and you can always make a list of parents' failings. If you've been a parent, you can make a list of your own failings, right? You pray your kids don't remember everything. Um, and um, I always told my girls, you're a PK, you're going to need counseling, I'll help pay for it. And then, and then when they went to counseling, I thought, oh, heavens, what did they tell her? Um uh, generational forgiveness is is a mark of the spirit of God moving, and, and that 's one of the things that it says John would do. He would, he would so interrupt the flow of the nation of Israel that hearts would be turned, he would a, God, a, a story of repentance, and part of that repentance would be forgiveness and restoration of relationships, reconciliation with other people and with God as well that 's what God does when he steps into a crowd. So Zechariah has this incredible experience and he says what anyone would say, how do I know this is going to happen? Because he's thinking, if I go out and tell Elizabeth that an angel told me you're going to have a baby and she doesn't have a baby, angel, you're not the one who's going to pay for this, right? <laughs> it's 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 real clear. He says, how do I know? And by the way, Gideon did the same thing. He kept doing the flip-flop with the fleece. And and so there's there's spiritual men that have asked that question and, and the angel says shouldn't I ask that I'm going to strike you dumb you're not going to be able to tell anyone anything and uh, so he goes out and scripture says number six that when the priest came out he would bless the people and the the benediction we use Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace." that is the priestly blessing that, that he would give to the people. And then they would all look to him and say, did you have an experience? And he said, no. and they finally realized he had had a vision or something. And there's this anticipation, what is going to happen in this passage says he goes home and he and Elizabeth make a baby. And it is, A miraculous story of a miraculous birth. Then in Luke chapter 1, verse 36, a little bit later down, you know the story of what we call the Annunciation, where the angel comes to Mary. A young teenage girl, 13, 14, 15, maybe 16. And we Protestants are almost afraid of praising Mary because we're afraid we'll look like Catholics get over it. She is amazing. She is amazing. This is a young teenage girl whom God says, I'm going to make you pregnant. And when you go back to your village and everybody sees you're pregnant, they're all going to assume they know why. And you're going to explain, no, this is why. And they're going to say, sure, Mary, you're going to be an outcast the rest of your life. You're going to be that's, by the way, that's why in the Gospels they'll refer to Jesus. Isn't this the son of the carpenter? What they're inferring is the illegitimate birth. I mean, this, this stigma goes with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus the rest of their lives. And she says, what do you want to, whatever you want to do, do to me. It's breathtaking. And then she prays that prayer, and Jesus, hanging from the cross, makes sure she's cared for. She's an amazing, amazing, amazing woman and um she didn't ask how do i know this is going to be true but god told her anyway um verse 36 it says behold your relative elizabeth her cousin in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with god behold i am the servant of the lord she said let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed and so she goes to see Elizabeth travel some way over out in Judea and verse 44 and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the holy spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb and why is this granted to me that the mother of my lord should have come to me for behold when the sound of your greeting came to my ears the baby in my womb leapt with joy and Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. John is a prophet from the womb because the Spirit said he will have the Spirit. The angel said he'd have the Spirit from birth. Um, again, a sign that this isn't because John was special. John is a prophet because God has made him one so that even from the womb he is proclaiming what he's been born to do and that is to signal that the one coming after him is the one for whom god will bless all people it's a pretty poignant moment and um elizabeth joins her in celebrating it and and john's already started his job before he gets paid or anything mark switching gospels introduces it this way Mark doesn't tell all the story he's he likes short stories it says verse two of chapter one as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way that's Malachi three and then Isaiah a voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord make his path straight John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins And he, going on down, one is coming after me. Oh, and John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his weight, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mm. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, By the way, some have suggested John may have lived in the Qumran community, would have been an Essene. Those are the guys that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. I actually have a little oil lamp from the Qumran community of that time. Um, And um, John comes and preaches a baptism of repentance to prepare the way. See, the gospel, it's almost like you can follow the gospel through this narrative. The gospel has to begin with a realization that my way is not the right way. We think of repentance as an emotional thing. That's not really, what, repentance is a change of thinking. It's a change of mind. It's not my way, it's God's way. It's, it's, I'm no longer in charge. God makes the rules. Repentance is that turn 180 degrees from the way that the world around me believes to the way that God wants me to believe. And he says he preaches a baptism and a baptism of repentance. So we don't know where John's baptism came from. If you're a Presbyterian, he's sprinkled. If you're a Baptist, you don't. Um, there was an Old Testament washings, a lot of washings, but they were repeated all the time, and they tended to be with moving water. There was the proselyte baptism, which may have been what, when a Gentile became a Jew. They, but it's kind of like John invented it, which is fascinating. He Suddenly, he shows up and starts baptizing people. But it's, it's a sign of repentance. And baptism is ultimately about identification. So by doing it, they were identifying with his message. But he says, there's one coming who will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. A picture of the greater ministry, the one who's so great that John says, I don't even have a right to untie his sandals. Because that was what John's ministry was. Uh, John... All the gospels get involved in this. John chapter one nineteen says, "This is the testimony of John." When the Jews sent priests and Levites from the Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are you?" and he confessed. And did not die, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they said, who then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. The prophet goes back to Deuteronomy, a prophecy of a special prophet that would come. And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who send us. What do you say about yourself? And he quotes from Isaiah 40. I am the one, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I am the one who is sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. Verse 29, the next day, he sees Jesus coming to him and he does his job. He says about his own cousin, fascinating, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when we think of lambs, we think of cute little fluffy things on greeting cards. They thought of the sacrificial system and the Passover lamb. When he says the Lamb of God, their minds would have immediately gone to the sacrificial system. That one who is murdered as representation of our forgiveness of sins. And he develops that by saying, who takes away the sins of the world. And John has done his job then. And he will baptize Jesus and, and a, one like a dove will descend and, and they'll hear a voice that says, this is my son. And if you study the life of john he he um, ultimately is imprisoned because he preaches against Herod because Herod takes his brother's wife and marries her and um which even our politicians don 't do i that I know of um, and um, he 's ultimately beheaded. You know the story about Salome the stepchild dancing for Herod's pleasure and and according to her mother's wishes he's brings his head is brought to her And so this last of the great prophets who's supernaturally born has announced that he came to make way for the one, and he's done it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then there's that whole question of why is he Elijah or is he not? And and it's fascinating because in the passage I just read, he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Uh, but in Matthew 11, um, Jesus is speaking. To him. They, they went away, verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he said, what do you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings. Um, what then did you go out and see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This of he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Malachi 3. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there was arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Personally, I think Jesus is saying, John says, I'm not Elijah, because they reject his message. I personally think, just a suggestion that if the Jews had responded and embraced Jesus as the Messiah, then he would have been the fulfillment of Elijah. But uh, the Jews believe that Elijah will yet come. You know, if you have Passover meal, there's an empty chair for Elijah. And many believe that one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation who will introduce the return of the Messiah to establish his kingdom is Elijah himself. So that picture of Elijah goes throughout the whole story. Because he had a special role. He introduced us to the Messiah. The Passover lamb, the one who fulfilled the promises going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and 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 Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham and first Samuel and David and all through that because God created a perfect world and we broke it. And you and I face that brokenness every day, won't we? First in ourselves. I'm getting to the age where I wake up in the middle of the night and reflect a lot and a lot of regrets. You always think of all the things I could have done or did do or it just, the older you get, the worse it gets. Something to look forward to, all of you. Um, um, You think about all the things, you know, and, and your own brokenness. And then if you're not careful, you can get caught up in the bitterness of the brokenness that you ran into. And uh, our hearts long for that shalom, that, that perfection that God created that we broke with sin, right? And from the get-go, God said, I've got a solution, and it'll come from the seed of the woman. And we've watched this story develop through these signposts of these significant births. When God showed us he had a plan, but first he had to send his son as the Lamb of God to die for the sins of the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Christmas is a sign with, excuse me, a time when it is joy. Uh, you know, joy of children, if nothing else, and the joy of of celebration. And but it's also a time of yearning because it's it's not what it ought to be, right? There's also that, and that's why Advent celebrations are so perfect because you celebrate Jesus' first coming while still having permission to yearn for His second coming when He'll clean up the mess. And John was that last prophet who announced the coming king, who is yet coming and will clean up this mess. And it's okay for us in the celebration of all that is Christmas to also ache for that fulfillment of what the king will do. Mark chapter 9 gives John's legacy, and they asked him, what did the scribes say that the first Elijah that a first Elijah must come? Why do they? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. Jesus says he was effectively Elijah. He came and introduced me. But he'll also say that. He was the greatest man except for everybody that will be in the kingdom because everybody in the kingdom will enjoy the benefits of the shalom that God originally promised. Um, These special births, births are are, are a time of unbelievable joy, right? Um, Anticipation and hope and dreams of what that baby will be and do. And Christmas, we celebrate that because this is the baby that fulfills all the promises, that gives us all the hope. And Elijah was the prophet in the Old Testament, and John is fulfillment in the New to say, He's coming. And today, as we prepare for the week of Christmas, He's coming. He's on his way. The first step we can do is that step of repentance, being reminded of how desperately need what he offers. And that's forgiveness through his sacrifice on the cross so that we can embrace him for all that he is and all that he brings. And that's a new life, a knife of fulfillment of all that God promised. While yet looking to the day when he'll clean up this mess on earth and we will reign with him forever. Please pray with me. Father, we, like ancient Israel, long for you to bring righteousness and peace and joy. And we long for you to fulfill your promises. But we're grateful that you waited to give us a chance to know you. Thank you for John, that Elijah figure who dressed funny, ate funny, and talked funny, and yet whom you used to announce your son. Lord, may we have the same anticipation of what your son brings as we celebrate his birth. And it's in his name that we pray today. Amen.